HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by EscapeMaker.com. Visit a farm. Escape through the net. Visit EscapeMaker.com for more. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you, as always, from the back of Bushwick, Brooklyn, in the middle of Roberta's Pizza. You, of course, are listening to The Farm Report. We are continuing our exploration of numbers this fall season. And we are joined in studio by Brittany Miller of Manchester Farms, a quail farm in Columbia, South Carolina. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to start really at the very kind of like beginning of the quail conversation. Um, I know that you're in town to celebrate the 30th uh, anniversary of D'Artagnan. So want to give a, a happy 30th shout out to the team out there. Um, but I figured when, 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 I, when I kind of first heard about you guys, I was like, quail. I'm like, I've eaten quail. I've cooked with quail. But I don't know if I actually really know where quail sits like in the poultry family so for folks Mm -hmm. like myself maybe we can just start with like what is quail so quail is a indigenous bird to many parts of the world Um, there's 22 species but it is considered poultry but it's also considered wild game most um, have memories of it from their grandfather hunting it and it's a sporting um, hobby that so many have and in the last 20 years to 40 years it really has made its way on the plate and the across the U.S. Um, it's very popular in Europe, in Spain, in Egypt, um, so all over the world. And really, the U.S. is probably one of the last pieces of the quail puzzle um, worldwide. So, I, I mean, it's like quail hunting. What we see in like Downton Abbey is that like a? <laughs> it's pretty much yeah. You, you um, some people do it on horseback in the fields and in the woods. Um, we at our place. Um, go out on four-wheelers and then walk the fields and hunt with dogs. But you are you have shotguns and you go out and the, it's really magical and beautiful to watch the dogs work the fields and point and then you have two or three dogs that'll back each other and they're all like statues. And um, it's, a, it's a very nostalgic sport 
that um, is kind of old world that modern technology hasn't gotten too involved with. So Yeah, I would say I, I definitely grew up with, uh, my dad was a bird hunter and bird dogs, and so he would train the dogs. He would have a fly fishing rod with a dead bird on the end of yeah. it that he would cast back and forth in the yard to kind of get the dog used to like scenting and tracking and... Um, so it's like a little bit of an intense sight as a young girl, <laughs> but, um, I always did enjoy eating the birds. So I, my, my, my like queasy stomach didn't last very long. <laughs> right. And that's, so that's kind of how all this started out is that my dad was a hunter and people would say, you know, the industry now is a little different because the predators out in the wild, there's coyotes, there's armadillos. So there's fewer wild quail, um, the, the natural stock and flock of the U.S. has been depleted so much. And so um, everybody wants to quail hunt, but they're not always available because the predators have kind of wiped them out. Pretty- so so you're, you're, you, you, the farm started in 1974. You are yep. second generation. Yeah. Um, when the farm started, and then now, I mean, how prevalent is like a quail farm? Is this a thing that's like, common in South Carolina? I feel like, you know, quail is definitely not up there with kind of like chicken or I would say even even duck as far as like familiarity. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of curious like wh- how, how your family landed on quail and then how do we kind of situate quail in the context of other um, poultry farming that happens in the U.S.? So um, 40 years ago, my dad was an avid quail hunter and um, he got a degree from Clemson University in poultry science and was working with um, Campbell Soup, raising as a flock supervisor for their chickens for the chicken noodle soup. And he kind of went against the grain of production and did it in an all-natural basis without hormones or you just give them the best care environment and feed if possible, and they'll grow up healthy and um, happy. And um, Campbell Soup loved the whole program and wanted to move them to New Jersey into their corporate headquarters. And He's an outdoorsman and a southern boy and said, thank you, but I'll pass. And so hunting, he felt like, you know, he could do the same thing with quail as they do in chickens. There were not really any quail meat on the menus across the U.S. at all back then. And started out raising quail just as to see if he could do it. And he did a really great job of it. And his neighbors said, if you'll process them for us, we'll buy them from you. So it started on a picnic table in the backyard and he would dress them out, and the neighbors would come buy them from him. And so they started selling to local grocery stores um, around the area, around South Carolina, and then it kind of just grew from there and over the years. Then the chefs kind of caught wind of it um, because they do serve quail a lot in Europe. And as these chefs travel from continent to continent, they kind of bring back with them what they learned in different areas. And they caught you know wind that my dad was doing this, and so then he started selling to the restaurants. And then... About 10 years into it, we started um, with D'Artagnan, and we were their second purveyor that they were going to start selling with, and now they're celebrating 30 years. So as they've grown, we've grown with them, and um, and it's just been a, it's been a nice, steady climb of interest. And especially with people these days, they're far more interested in their food and more interested in understanding trying new things. Just look at quinoa right now. I mean, it's tremendous. You're like, if we could do for quail what quinoa has done for quinoa, we would be very happy. Well, you know, honestly, the size that we're at, we're pretty happy. We're we happy there. Yeah, it's a pretty sweet spot for us. Um, I am like... I'm still actually like kind of like ruminating around the fact that Campbell's Soup Company 
in the 70s was raising its own chickens. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I had no idea. That's like totally wild. Completely to me. integrated. Yeah. Huh. I wonder if that's still the case. I don't know. So you pursued a degree in poultry science as well. I did. Yes. So you were just like, knew you were going to stay part of the family business and was like, chickens, where it's at. I mean, I know you bounced around a little bit. I so, did bounce. Yeah. So like, did you, did you always plan on coming back to the farm? Or? I always knew that I would be back. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I grew up every Saturday with my dad in the barns. And so it was just, it's enrooted in my soul. And I always knew it, but I went to Clemson also to get some business, you know, because Farming is farming, and then you also have to have business strategies to stay in business. If you want to keep farming. If you want to keep farming. So you can't just say, I'm a farmer. You have to be a business person as well. So I went to Clemson and studied in um, business and finance and marketing to kind of round out and um, went to work for a pharmaceutical company in New Jersey, actually, for a couple years to learn um, a little bit more about the corporate world. And after two years, they were bought out and they transferred me to California. So I went came back to the family farm and um, had a great time. So I always knew that I would be back. Um, It's been, I'd like to say that the things that I learned while I was away, I brought back because it was really farming and less business. And now it has a nice balance. And you'd spent a little bit of time in the restaurant world too, right? I did. Yeah. So I was with Manchester for five years after I came back from New Jersey. And my dad and I are both type A personalities. And Depending on the blue sky of the day, we would argue whether it was light blue or dark blue and kind of spar too much. <laughs> sure. And then, as you do, uh, you know, family businesses, it's the old cliche of the second generation and the third generation don't make it. And we didn't want to be that way. And so I told him, I said, you know, I love you and I love this farm, but I love you more. And I don't want to lose you as a dad because we were, it was starting to become more of an argument than it was. Yeah. Um, and I know a lot of families, you know, share the same problems, whether it's farming or, there's a show that's about a pawn shop that has, you know, family dynamics are interesting. Sure. So we agreed that I would step out and go take some time off. And I went to Colorado and managed a private club out there. It's, um, it was a private ski club on mountain and Vail, and, um, it was fine dining at night and a private club during the day. So I kind of stayed tied to the food and the food world. And then called to tell my parents that I was pregnant with our second child and um, agreed that it was time for us to come back. To so, come back. Yeah. You're like, time Time has healed. You're, you're yeah. like, I, I'm ready. We're ready well, to give it another he go. He also had his fifth heart attack, so he was ready to retire. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. so it was the right time for him, and it was the right time for us. And so my brother was still part of the business at the time, and we ran it together for a few years, and then just in the last two years decided that it, you know, we didn't want to see the demise of the family farm die because of a, you know, family opposition. Sure. Because we're just different personalities. Both yeah. good people, but just different. And so we agreed that um, one of us should own it. So I bought out his interest two years ago. So Nice. Yeah. So, so you're like, now I have the quail powers. Oh, <laughs> well, it's, you know, <laughs> really, it, we have almost 100 employees that work with us. And it was really kind of a divorce because do you go with mom or do you go with dad? Sure. You know, and, and so out of respect for everybody that's been with the farm for so long, we just wanted to make a healthy choice for it. So yeah. it was, you know, whether it's just, it's really just one leadership and one direction instead of challenging leaderships. No, absolutely. Well, so, um, you guys do uh, obviously whole quail. You do quail in like pieces. You mm-hmm. do quail like a, a bacon wrapped quail, and then yep. you do quail eggs. So I want to kind of and, and you do a lot. So I think it's eighty thousand quail a week that you're raising. That's right. Just short of four million just over the course of, of year. That's right. 
That's a lot of quail. <laughs> it's a lot of quail. So, and you hatch everything out. On, yeah. So that, I think, is also, I mean, for the poultry industry generally, the kind of, like, hatching and raising of meat birds and egg layers is not normally, like, happening in one That's operation. That's right. Yeah. They, um, in the commercial industries of, of the chicken poultry world, they have hatchers, they have breeders, they have um, layers, and then they have broilers, which are the actually the meat birds. And they're all owned by separate companies and not all under one umbrella, in which we are considered vertically integrated, um, meaning that we own the hatchery, we own the breeder farm, we own the grow-out barns, um, we own the processing plant, and we also handle all the distribution. So it, it's many folds of business under one um, ownership in one one family name, and um, we think it's great because, you know, in our eyes, we're stewards of their lives and giving them the best care and the feed and love and commitment that you can is helps produce the best product out there. And so, we in the old days when my dad ran the business, he had contractors, and Steve, my brother, and I decided that, you know, we felt like if we embraced others that had the same passion that we did under you know our namesake it would be a better product in the end and it's it's proven to be true so the only part of the business that we don't own now is the feed mill and that's just because our scale of consumption of feed doesn't warrant owning a feed mill so we partner with another family farm that has a a turkey operation so so and you guys raise farrow quail Quail. So is Pharaoh the same as Bob White, or is that nope. different? Okay. It's different. So um, Pharaoh quail comes from Egypt, so it's a naturally kosher bird. Um, it came over on the ark. Uh-huh. We had a rabbi come down and certify our farm kosher, and he showed me in the feet of the bird where it has the extra toenail uh-huh. that deems it naturally kosher. Although we don't sell the meat kosher because of the processing yeah. salting methods. But I've never heard of naturally kosher. So that basically means like by the kind of kosher standards, the, the bird is like born correct. It was born I biblically. Mean, air quotes, like mm-hmm. bi- biblically correct. Right. Yeah. Interesting. So our breed of quail is a, um, a heritage heirloom breed. It's a sole breed. It's not modified and mixed with another breed. It comes from um, Egypt, and then it migrated to Japan. There was a Japanese emperor that got sick, and he ate quail for 40 days and was healed. And so he told all of the people of Japan, you must eat quail. And I think that's probably now why pharaoh quail has many nomenclatures. It's also known as Caternix, pharaoh, haponica, haponica. It's, it has a name, you know, variety. Variety. But it all funnels back to the same pharaoh quail. And, and it was always, pharaoh quail is a domestic quail. It is domesticated okay. now, yeah. And so Bob White, um, you'll find out in the wild, there are some growers that choose to grow Bob White. My dad actually started with Bob White, mm-hmm. but they're very anxious birds, and they are disease-prone. And okay. so we made a commitment that we wouldn't use antibiotics in the feed, we don't use it preventatively. If you raise them healthy and right, you might not need it as treatment. Right. Like we haven't used any antibiotics in over 20 years. And that was only because the feed that came in, it got wet and had a mycotoxin in it. So we right. had to treat that one flock. But um, So the Bob Whites, it has a more white meat bird. It's like a, if you close your eyes, you might as well eat a chicken. Sure. Um, ours has a medium blend flavor. It's not totally dark, but it's not totally white. Okay. But um, but there's a you know distinct difference between the two of them. 
So you have um, kind of the hatchery. So tell, mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about like when you're hatching out chicks, like what is the kind of time frame for that? And, and so where do they, where does like the initial egg come from, if you will? So the egg comes from a farm where we have the males and the females. And they, um, she, the female, the hen, will lay an egg every 36 hours, whether the male is present or not. Um, it's just when Mother Nature made it. And so we have the boys and the girls together, and they make babies, and we collect the eggs twice a day, and then they get moved to the hatchery um, on a Sunday, and they get put in um, these boxes that are incubators, basically. And they go in there, and they stay in there for two weeks on a specific time and temperature. It's very um, scientifically handled now because you can you can affect a hatch one way or the other depending on the humidity the temperature um and so we have they stay in the incubators for two two weeks and then three days they get moved over into the hatchers and then they get um they come out as chicks on wednesdays so we put them in on sundays you know 14 17 days later they're coming out as baby chicks and it happens every thursday and and you guys can incubate about a hundred thousand eggs at a time. We currently incubate about a hundred thousand eggs every time. We the it's called the hatch rate, right? So they hatch out about eighty thousand. Yeah, okay. So that's where the number change right. happens. And so something different than the chicken industry for us. Chickens' eggs are white, as mm-hmm. everybody can see, or brown. And you can do what's called candling, and you mm-hmm. can put a light up in them and tell whether they're fertile or not. Our eggs are speckled and brown and multicolored, so you can't see. Um, there's no way to candle them to tell if they're fertile. So we just have to put them all in, and then that's what we get. So because you can't really, you're not like out there with clipboards tracking like which chickens have had sex. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, <no. It's> and <laughs> our quail, kind of like most farm animals, in that like the male to female ratio is like like how many males do you need in your flock of hens to we, we do probably about one male for every three females for every three females yeah and it's it's all natural there's no you know they do it if they want to and if they don't they don't so it's it's all by mother nature so and how do you so so obviously that the the kind of hens that you select to um, be part of the hatchery system are those is that a different group than the egg layers where if I'm going to go to the store and buy like a dozen quail eggs? So what we do is, you know, we don't see ourselves as scientists throughout this whole process, but um, certainly try and do it the old world way. So when we bring birds from the field that are coming back to the plant to be processed for meat, we'll go through every single bird and feel to see if they have the right shape and the meat breakdown of what we want you know it's just kind of like when you go buy a cow you sure know. you're looking at do the you like, carcass composition right like, do, do they have like the traits the we're looking for yeah and we don't do any lab testing or anything like that it's just really a good natural feel and an instinct and so we select breeders probably about once a month and males and females and then um, they stay at the farm she will lay eggs for well over a year and um he um I mean, they'll just continue to go on, but you see a rise and a fall in fertility, yeah. and there's a bell curve. So coming we try, back to that like business the, aspect of mm-hmm. farming, where you know you have to keep track of who's producing, who's not producing, and then you make decisions there. That's right. That's right. So in the bell curve of of fertility, she's right in there, and, and she wanes off at about probably 25 weeks of age, but she'll continue to lay fresh eggs. So the eggs for consumption. That's where we get those eggs from. Got it. And so the male just comes out, 
and she'll just continue to lay eggs for another half year. And then when we see that she starts to decline in her egg production, that tells us that she's... She's ready for retirement. She's ready for retirement. Which means what for the egg layers? So they will come back to the plant, and they'll get um, processed. And we have a group of um, interesting other animal owners Mm -hmm. that um, they're falconeers, and they own these falcons. And it's a high-end hobby, but they only want our quail. And so... um, just trying to be respectful to the animals and their purpose, making sure that nothing goes in the trash can or into the dumpster. And so we um, harvest them and then sell them to the falconeers, and the falcons eat them as their food. So the retired egg layers become falcon food. That's right. Huh. Wow, I was not expecting that. (laughs) Um, Well, let's uh, let's take just a quick break, and then when we come back, we will... um, talk a little bit about the meat side of things. Hang tight. You're listening to The Farm Report, and we'll be right back. Visit a farm. Log on to escapemaker.com for more ideas on local weekend getaways and day trips, including orchards, farms, and wineries. Or come by Escapemaker's Yellow Tent in Grow NYC's Green Markets and pick up a guide to local agritourism escapes to the Green Market's own farmers and producers. The guide will be updated seasonally to feature farms, wineries, and destinations in New York City, New York State, New Jersey, Vermont, and Pennsylvania. Plus, Escape Maker will offer overnight packages to these destinations so you can get the full experience. No car? No problem. Escape Maker features plenty of ideas for car-free getaways, including discounts via Amtrak. There's no better time to explore outside the city. Soak up the fresh air and scenery like a butterfly and support your local farmer. Log on to EscapeMaker.com to get inspired and make your escape through the net. All right, we are back. We are in studio with Brittany Miller of Manchester Farms. She is a quail farmer down in Columbia, South Carolina. Um, been farming, family farming, second generation since 1974. And just before the break, we were talking a little bit about the egg layers uh, for those beautiful tiny, perfect quail eggs. <laughs> you know, it's kind of interesting, actually, kind of talking through that process um, you know, why quail eggs are, are seen on, um, high, you know, fancy, fancy menus. No one's getting like a quail egg at a diner. One, it seems like they produce, um, much less than chickens, Mm -hmm. which I think are more on like an 18 to 24 hour cycle. Um, quail eggs being 36, but then also I find like the, we always talked about this when I was cooking, the size lends themselves so well to a dish. It's a lot to put an egg, a whole chicken egg on a dish, but Mm -hmm. a quail egg can be just like this beautiful, um, decorative Delightful. element. Yeah. 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 Would you say that there's like a, a, a flavor or a texture difference to quail eggs or is it primarily like the size is what's different? Well, certainly the size is different. Um, the nutritional value we know is even more spectacular. One, huh. one quail egg equals the nutritional value of five chicken eggs. They're very dense in protein, huh. nutrients. It's got a full amino acid. 
Um, and I don't know if that goes back to the day of the Bible when God fed them quail when they were starving. Um, if that's just the way Mother Nature needed to get them back to an enriched state or not. But um, the other thing is that they, it has this luxness of um, flavor. Like we make pancakes and waffles with it. And mm-hmm. it just makes the waffles just taste richer. So you do baking with quail eggs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Kind of like one of the perks, I think. <laughs> I, I don't know that I've ever had anything baked with quail eggs. Um, it's um, it, it just, you know, for us, it's the nutritional value as well as uh-huh. the flavor. It just has just a nice, richer flavor. And um, like I eat hard-boiled eggs every morning. And you just hard-boil them and peel them. And it's just a nice way to start the day. Your energy level is great because it has so much protein. Yeah. But it, they, you know, when you take them out of the shell, they look the same as a chicken egg, just petite. Just petite. Yep. Yeah. And um, and also, if like you were doing any whipping for meringue or anything, mm-hmm. the structure of the, I guess, the egg helps it stand up taller and firmer. Wow. So, um, well, something for you guys to experiment with when you're feeling flush. Um, so after the eggs, um, after the chicks are, um, come out of incubation, it says you keep, you keep them kind of together for about mm-hmm. a five-week period, and, and there you separate meat birds and laying hens. Right. So how do you decide? So they, when they leave the hatchery, they have probably a 10, 15-minute ride to the farm, depending on the location. We have another that's about 45 minutes away. Um, they go to the barn. They stay there for five weeks, and we have them in the barns to protect them from... Um, Mother Nature disasters, like in South Carolina, it rained for a whole week last week. And they wouldn't make it. It would be just too stressful. And then there's a lot of predators as well, fire ants. Um, There's predators on the ground as well as the sky. And so um, we have them in these long flight barns that they can fly as much as they want and spread out. And um, So they stay there for five weeks, and then they come back to the plant. And when we get... When they're back at the plant, we have that person that does the breeder selection to determine does the right is the right makeup, you know, of what we want to keep going on in, in the growth of the grandparent stock. Sure. Um, we don't buy anything from outside any other farms, which is different from the chicken industry. They have these breeders that um, produce hatching chicks, and you can buy a certain breeder stock of FB1 or FB2, and it's not like that for us at all. It's just all about the feel. And so we select them, and then they get they go back to a different location, um, which is where they are layers, or they turn into breeders. So um, a female is a little bit different from a male. Um, she will start into production of producing eggs at like five weeks, uh-huh. and then the males won't become fertile until about six weeks. So okay. there's a little lag time between the two of them, about two weeks. So and they can get to know each other a little bit, you know, really. It's kind of like humans, too, I think, as well. You know, his girls mature faster than the boys. <laughs> so, yeah, so then, it, you know, once the boys are ready, then they just, they're off to the races. So. So there's literally someone who's kind of, I am, I'm kind of imagining, like, sitting in a chair, sitting in a place where they're, like, just basically feeling every, every bird. 80,000 a week. Wow. Yeah. Talk about like muscle memory, right? Um, so the the birds that are getting raised um, for meat, um, what what does that life cycle look like? So, and before we kind of jump into that, I do want to like make a note that this is really different than the chicken industry. I mean, it's a totally ge- different genetic stock if you're doing egg layers versus meat birds, but that's not the case for you guys. You no. guys are doing we're doing it all. You're doing it all, which is which is 
like I find it kind of blows my mind. Like I know like meat birds for chickens, you know, will go from a hatched out little hen to a five pound roaster in your oven and around like eight, nine weeks. Mm-hmm. But if I want to get an egg, it'll go from a hatched out little hen to a bird that's going to give me an egg in like six months. Right. So the growth rates, like how, how does it's that work? It's a lot work? shorter. Yeah. Um, so they go to the farm and they stay there for about five weeks and they just mill around and um, socialize and eat and sleep and nap and um, just kind of like a newborn. They're, the most intense time for them is in their first week, just like a newborn in the early steps of their lives. They need us the most. And um, so we're just very cautious and very careful for them in the first week. And then as they grow up a little bit more, you know, they need us a little bit less. But for the first week, we've got people in there almost all day. And um, and then once they start to grow and mature, we kind of back out a little bit. Um, they love humans. They do. We have um, our quail whisperer that goes in at least twice a day and talks and shushes them and gets them to move around a little bit. And um, and so they stay there for five weeks, and then they come back to the plant, and then they get um, harvested for meat. And then they go through the processing side of it, and then they get handy boned. About fifty percent of them get handy boned for the restaurant trade, which is kind of our flagship product. So, um, and then the layers—they just the ones that produce just the eggs—they right. just stay on farm until they go through that cycle of fertility. You know, they start off as a layer for two weeks while they wait for the boys, right? And then they go through the breeder side of it where they produce hatching eggs. And then once the fertility starts to drop, then they go back to being layers. So it's not totally separated. It's She just has different roles different at different roles. times of her life. Interesting. Yeah. Now, you know, uh, one of the other topics we've been talking about on the show a bit um, in the last few months is obviously bird flu, mm-hmm. um, which is, is really been devastating in certain parts of oh, the yeah. industry. Is this something that you guys are, you know, preparing for, worried about? Is it affecting the quail population? So the bird flu started um, out in the northwest last year from wild birds flying over. And they got into some backyard farms, and then they got on some commercial farms. Um, They've had a chance to go back and look at now to understand why the Midwest got hit so hard. And they've recognized that it's um, honestly gets back to um, biosecurity Mm -hmm. and how you handle your human practices on farm. And one of the things for us is because we are completely contained within our own world, um, it's quintessential for us to make sure that we have all the safest, cleanest farm available because it's not like we can go down the road to another producer and say, can you supply us some birds because ours passed away? Sure. It's just not. So we have to be super extra protective. And we have steps along every process that we do full washdowns in between flocks. We wash every single filter. We just, you know, um, disinfect. We have um, foot baths that you have to walk in. We have, if you come on farm, and I'd love to show you the farm if you're ever in South Carolina, but you'll have a garb that you have to wear that will stop any kind of transfer from one farm to another or even just somebody coming on farm that might have backyard chickens like we don't let them on our farm you know that is i think a thing that people really don't recognize that i've noticed touring farms here in the northeast is i had a a stack a sack of booties in the Mm -hmm. back of my and when i went from farm to farm because there's certain things that like once they're on your property right they're they're just kind of there you know so ounce of prevention pound of care right that's exactly right You know, and honestly, I have this philosophy that if it looks dirty, it eats dirty. And we're pretty anal retentive. We had a rabbi come down to do the kosher um, inspection. And at the end of the day, he was like, wow, 
and he was talking to another rabbi and he said you're never going to see this that much and I was like what and he said it's so clean like there's no dirt there's no feathers there's no dust and I'm like well yeah doesn't that happen at every other farm that you go to and he was like I can't say that I can say that so (laughs) um, you know we kind of treat it like would you raise your children in a filthy mess with a bunch of dirt and grime no you wouldn't so these are 80,000 of our babies every week that we want to give them the best protection out there. And for that reason, the biosecurity for us for this fall, which the flyover is expected for the fall for the East Coast. Uh-huh. Um, you know, we even have like our feed trucks that are going to drive through disinfectants to, to cover the tires so that you're not driving on any opportunities or um, challenges. And I think we should note, um, if bird flu comes into your flock... The protocol is to euthanize yes. the entire flock so, immediately. You know, there, it's not like if a kid shows up at school, he gets sick, he gets sent mm-hmm. home, and you know, you kind of wait and see if. I, but like in in the poultry world, that's why I think the level of precaution is, is so intense because it's so potentially devastating. It could be very devastating. We have um, on one of our locations has three. It's our the breeder farm, and then also the grow out barns. And so, if that one one site got contaminated, we'd have to depopulate the entire barn and all, all of the barns. And, um, I mean, that's 50% of our business. That's got to be keeping you up at night a little bit. It does. Say. Well, you know, you plan, you plan, you plan. You have your plan, your backup plan, and, and then a third and a fourth. Yeah. And, um, and you pray a lot, <laughs> you know. So we're hoping that this fall is not going to be an issue and that um, the ducks, the wild ducks just – don't shed the like, flu. Keep on. Keep, keep it on with going. you. Yeah. <laughs> Stay over there. You're going to so, set up like a little bit of a laser force field over the farm, well, and, like a biodome. And like. as silly as it sounds, like going duck hunting. Like we won't go duck hunting this fall just because we're not going to be exposing ourselves to any potential. Yeah. Or huh. anywhere that the ducks would hang out. So anybody that comes on the farm, if you've been duck hunting, you can't come on the farm. Big so deal, yeah. It's being hypersensitive, but um, we feel that that's the best way to be right now, just to make sure that um, we're protected. Sure. And I think the industries are a little bit different, like the layer industry and the chicken world. I think their biosecurity was not at the same as, like, broilers, which is the meat birds. Right. And it was just a different mentality. Right. And so we've always been hypersensitive, and the broilers have been hypersensitive. That's why you didn't see as much... Um, contraction in, in that, that segment mm-hmm. yeah yeah well we're just about out of time um but i want to end on a more delicious note um what's your favorite way to eat quail oh gosh um you know it's such a versatile meat that you can really you can roast it stuff it pan saute it fry it um a simple fried quail is delightful but also we do a recipe at home where we just put salt and pepper olive oil um, zest of lemon and rosemary and throw it on the grill four minutes on each side and it's you could eat ten of them so it's easy but challenge accepted yeah <laughs> <laughs> well Brittany thank you so much for, for joining us on your trip it's been really great to oh have you in studio it's been an absolute pleasure thank you the name again is Manchester Farms you can find out more about them at www.manchesterfarms.com or find them on Twitter at Manchester Quail um, or check out the D'Artagna website if you want to get a mail ordered around. Yeah, we can ship anywhere in the country if you can't find it in a local retailer. Or just call us 
and um, we'll help you find a store. Find your way to some quail. Awesome. Hang tight. Uh, when we come back, we will have the Escape Maker segment. And uh, once again, thanks for thanks so much, Brittany. It's been a real a pleasure. pleasure. Thank you. Pivoting here from quails to apples, uh, it is time once again for the Escape Maker segment of the Farm Report, and I'm really um, excited to be joined on the line by Steve Clark from Prospect Hill Orchard. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you, Aaron. So you are calling in from up in Milton, New York. Um, give us a little bit of a rundown on, on Prospect Orchards. Um, you guys raise a variety of stone fruit and apples. Um, but give us a little sense of the size and scope of your operation. Okay, well, it's Prospect Hill Orchards, and that's because uh, 198 years ago, my great-great-great-grandfather moved to Prospect Hill in Milton, which is about a mile west of the Hudson. And Milton, for your listeners, is about 75 miles north of uh, Manhattan. So, uh, yes, we, we are very diversified. I have a daughter, Pam, who goes to... Uh, some of the farmers markets in New York City. So for her, we grow all the berries and, you know, some of the odd things like uh, rhubarb and quince and, uh, you know, there's, there's even some odd apples we grow just for her. But uh, we are diversified. We do grow sweet and sour cherries and we have apricots and plums and peaches and prunes and nectarines and pears and apples. Yum. I'm like, I'm like all of those things, all of those things. Um, well, I was taking a perusal through your um, website, and I noticed you have a quite, extension, a quite extensive section on some of your green um, farming practices. And I wanted to talk about a few in particular. I wonder if you can share with our listeners a little bit about your solar program. All right. Well, we had the opportunity uh, to put in a 42-kilowatt uh, solar array, and we had a uh, storage building, a cold storage building, and it uses a lot of electricity, and so we were trying to uh, kind of lessen our footprint. And um, I worked with a guy by the name of uh, Bill Jordan at Jordan Energy, and, you know, we were able to put together a program. This was five years ago, and... Uh, in that five-year period, the, the the cost of installing has gone down by by half. We were eight dollars a kilowatt. And I understand right now it's four dollars a kilowatt or less. Uh, so I'm sorry, not kilowatt watt. And uh, 
So that has come down. But yes, we uh, yeah we generate a fair amount of the electricity. Uh, you know, in the months of uh, April, May, June, July, we we you know we just don't use any electricity. You know, the storage is hardly running that anyway. But and you have a lot more sunlight. Of course, in the winter. The reverse is true. The uh, particularly this time of year, they we you know are cooling the fruit down, and uh, the sunlight is becoming less and less. Well, I think that's one of those things that uh, is easy is easy to forget if you're not like up there on the farm, but you are coming to the market regularly and you see apples as kind of one of those like staple winter crops and a big part of like what the tools that you have to make sure the apples we're getting throughout this season are kind of like crisp and delicious is the storage facility. Can you tell us a little bit about um, like what it means to store an apple? What are some of the best practices and, and what is the kind of life you can get out of an apple in storage? Well, uh, you know, the technology continually changes and improves. We have two types of storages. We have, we ha- we have what we call air storage or 32-degree storage, and that's simply uh, refrigerating down to 32 or 34 degrees, and, you know, it's a normal atmosphere. For longer-term storage, for anything from January on, uh, we have what we call controlled atmosphere storage. And what we do is we reduce the amount of oxygen in the room to around 2.5%. What we do is we increase the amount of nitrogen. Nitrogen already is making up about 78% of the atmosphere anyway. So we increase that up to about 97.5%. And we have the technology now. They they actually have a compressor with a filter that segregates uh, nitrogen molecules from oxygen molecules and puts the nitrogen back in the room to bring it down to that level and then it's a it's a airtight room so uh, you have to monitor it because the apples even though they're basically in hibernation um, they still respire and they still use oxygen so you have to constantly monitor on a daily basis to add a little oxygen but not too much so to kind of keep things in and what about I know with like some root vegetables there's like um, arguments around whether you should wash it before you store it or wash it after you store it. Does that come into play with apples as well? No. Uh, what we do is uh, we keep the humidity in the room relatively high. The refrigeration units will frost up, so they have to be defrosted. And that defrost water, I, I let it go down on the floor and, and just keep the, uh, the moisture up so the apples don't dehydrate. Now, some, some apples dehydrate much more quickly than others, Golden Delicious being a prime example of one that they, they'll, they'll get wrinkly because they're dehydrated. They're still a decent apple, but they're just not, they don't hold the uh, turgid pressure and the firmness that, you know, you would associate with a great apple. You know, there's other apples that, uh, you know, no matter what you do to them, like, you know, Fuji's really good, uh, you know, Rome's for all its... All its negativity is is also a great storage apple. So yeah, there there, there are some differences, but uh, you know the uh, you can you can keep those apples pretty easily into uh, April and May. Once they come out, you know their shelf life is not going to remain high for a, a super long period of time, but certainly for a month or five or six weeks. So if I want to buy uh, you know a, a bushel of apples at their peak and take them home and store them in my fridge. Um, what's, what can I expect as far as, like, prime storage time in my, like, home fridge environment? Well, I just had a guy, it's interesting you bring that up. I had a customer. 
And he said, you know, I still have six Johnny Golds from last year in my refrigerator, and they're still edible. Wow. So I thought that was pretty impressive. You know, I would tell you, uh, you know, put them in a they, – they can't be in a bag that doesn't breathe because they'll apples release ethylene, and, and they will overripen. But, you know, you want them to stay – moist so you know you you know you, you put them in your refrigerator with maybe a wet towel over them or something like that and uh, i think it's amazing how long some of these varieties do go you know the one we always suggest is ida red it seems to last you know for a very long period of time and still stay in very good shape so if you know if you uh, if you come to pick your own and you want to keep a lot of apples for a long period of time that's one of those you should have and, you know, maybe if you, if you want a selection, some of the other varieties, you eat them up first and then, you know, just be selective in, in, in what you take and how long you store it. And how long you store it. Well, kind of speaking of that, uh, like the pick your own and kind of getting kind of boots on the farm, you know, there's so many great uh, orchards in, in the Northeast. And I think it's really a fall tradition to, to go on site and to do picking and to do picking your own. And I'm wondering if you can share a little bit like, what makes this region so great for growing apples? Well, in Milton and in the Hudson Valley in general, we have a lot of ridges, a lot of rolling hills, and they create a frost-free environment. So when the apples are in bloom in the spring, uh, they're they very susceptible to freezing temperatures. And, you know, that's the one thing that, that really... We have always have consistent cropping up on these high hills. Uh, we have a great market in the New York metro area, and you know historically, uh, we're on the Hudson River, and historically we were able to ship fruit overnight once they uh, uh, steamboats you know had a system. They would pick the fruit up that was picked in the morning. They would pick it up in the afternoon, deliver it to New York City that night, and it would be sold the next day. And, it, you know, it doesn't get any better than that today. And that was, you know, 150 years ago. Well, I think, yeah, some things change, things change in all different directions and, and super fast, it feels like, these days. Um, one of the things that I am focusing on the Farm Report for this fall season is it's really kind of trying to drill into um, kind of the numbers. How do we kind of quantify and think about what are the critical measurements? And I'm wondering, for you at Prospect Hill Orchards, what are some of those kind of um, spaces that you look to to kind of assess how things are going in a given day or season? Um, what are the ways that you kind of break that down? Well, you know, it's uh, it's like this coming weekend, and you know, we're we're ordering cider. Uh, you know, what's the weather going to be, or what is the perception of the weather? We think the weather is <laughs> going to be pretty decent, except for maybe Saturday morning up until nine or ten. Then we think after that it's going to be good. But you know, if you're going to drive for two hours and make that kind of commitment, you want to be absolutely sure. So. You know, we're, we're kind of hedging a little bit, thinking that, uh, you know, this weekend may be off a little bit. But when we're measuring it on site, you know, we look at how full is the parking lot. You know, we look at how many, how many of our buckets are out in the orchard and how many are left to go out. And then you can count the number of boxes of bags that, you know, you've gone out. And you get a pretty good idea of, of what kind of day it's going to be. That makes a lot of sense. Um, it's like the weather is like such a thing. Yeah, I feel like we get a little skittish at the the, the almost any sign of rain. I'm definitely getting um, keep getting warnings on my phone about Hurricane Joaquin. Is that something that you guys are hearing anything about? <laughs> 
we watch the weather three times a day, guaranteed. <laughs> uh, we, we do, uh, you know, our, our opinion is that the, that the Weather Channel, they're, they're making this into a media event. And, you know, they, they like the viewership, so they, they hype it probably more than, than they should. Uh, you know, what we're seeing now, the last forecast I saw at lunchtime, uh, it, it looks to me like it's going to be more of a coastal event. Uh, you know, you may see more of, the, of it down in the city. <clears throat> we're going to see less of it up here. It looks like morning showers on Tuesday, and that's about it. <clears throat> so a good time to, to get out of town and, and head up your way, it sounds like. Hey, this is good, yeah. And, well, there's a lot to do up here. You know, there's Pick Your Owns. Uh, we have four wineries in town. Uh, we have the walkway over the Hudson. <clears throat> there's just a lot, of, a lot of neat things to do in the area. And if you want to expand a little bit and go over to the Shawangook Mountains, you know, there's hiking trails, there's biking trails. <clears throat> the Mid-Hudson area just has a lot to do. Sold. I am sold. Well, Steve, thank you so much. It's been great chatting with you and get a little insight on what you have going on up at Prospect Hill Orchard. Well, thank you for having me on, and I hope some of your customers and my, you know, your, your, so your listeners will become my customers. We can Have do a, a good day. We can do a trade. For folks, if you want to find out more, definitely check out their website, www.prospecthillorchards.com. Also, um, give a shout-out to our sponsor, Escape Maker. Um, they do all the work uh, for you as far as putting together an itinerary if you're not really sure where to go, but you have a time frame, you have a distance, you have a budget, they can help you pick the right trip for you, and um, maybe Prospect Hill Orchards will be on that trip. Um, definitely visit them there, escapemaker.com. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of The Farm Report, a jam-packed show today, as always. Got to give a big shout-out to my engineer, Liz, uh, out there in the booth, making things run smoothly for me. And uh, once again, thanks to Escape Maker for helping us bring radio to you every week. Um, if you have not been to the new Heritage Radio Network website, what is going on? You have a phone in your hand right now. Just, just check it out. Um, would love to hear your thoughts. Um, would love to hear what you think about the features. Definitely check out the topics page. Um, if you're into the Farm Report, I recommend checking out the Agriculture tab and the food advocacy tag lots of good stuff in there a chance to explore all of our amazing shows and if you're out there listening live hang tight eating matters is coming up next they got a great episode exploring animal welfare and food labeling so stay tuned for that thank you so much for listening stay tuned in Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>